as Father Mariusz was saying, I'll be talking about the intersection of artificial intelligence and religion. You might say, what is this very strange picture? Well, this is St. Peter's Basilica, but it has been crossed with a picture of a computer chip using a program called Deep Dream Generator, which is online. And I'll be showing several of these pictures as we go. And of course, this is what St. Peter's Basilica looks like when it is not crossed with a computer chip. So AI and religion might seem unrelated. It might harken back to thoughts such as uh, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem, which is a famous saying uh, from uh, the early uh, time of early Christianity. Um, and of course, it turns out that Athens and Jerusalem have a lot to do with each other. And the Dominican order is certainly very interested in that intersection. But of course, the next question I would say is, if we're continuing that vein, we ought to ask what the Silicon Valley have to do with Rome. And I would say that they actually also have a lot to do with each other. Uh, so much so, in fact, that we can only really scratch the surface here uh, because there is so much to talk about. And this image is the Mission Santa Clara, which is at the university where I work at Santa Clara University. And this is what it looks like when it has not been crossed with the deep dream of Starry Night. I want to talk briefly about four points of intersection. Uh, there's a theological aspect of the intersection. There's an anthropological aspect of this intersection between AI and religion. There's also an ethical aspect and also the political aspect. And this is Stonehenge, as you were probably able to tell. So one of the questions that I want folks to think about as you're as you're listening to, to what I say over the next few minutes is just think about, is there a specifically Catholic Christian response to AI? Um, because AI ra raises a lot of deeper questions. Um, and I think that imagining and, and conceptualizing how artificial intelligence connects specifically to Christianity and Catholicism is an important question for us to ask. I'll, I'll be getting into a lot of this, but I think uh, there's, like I said, I'm only scratching the surface. There's really so much to talk about. So just some basic uh, things that are going on in theology and AI that uh, folks might not uh, know about. Uh, there are, for example, movements to view AI as a potential god. So, for example, a former engineer at Google and Uber named Anthony Lewandowski started a church called The Way of the Future Church, which was basically centered around creating an AI god and then worshiping it. Uh, that the way of the future church is now uh, defunct. It's no longer in existence, although it does still have a, a a Twitter account uh, with some fans who are continuing to think about these things. Um, others believe that God is in charge of a kind of a computer simulation in which we dwell. Uh, so, for example, Lincoln Cannon, who is a Mormon transhumanist, has something that he calls the new God argument. And this new God argument uh, is based on the fact that uh, if we are living in a computer simulation uh, and this somehow aligns with Mormon theology, uh, if we're living in a computer simulation, then the people who created our simulation used to be like us in another God's computer simulation. And, and our goal, therefore, is to do that also, uh, make computer simulations full of simulated people and things like that. Um, and he has he has these ideas online where you can go look them up if you want to. Um, but you can kind of think about the movie The Matrix also. And in, in other words, that this world is somehow not real in some sense, but it is, of course, real in a different sense. Um, others think that we can create our own heaven on earth through technology. So, for example, the transhumanism movement and they even uh, some people have even talked about creating something like a metaverse as your afterlife, right, where you're uh, everything that is uh, retained from you in this life is then transferred into this kind of artificial afterlife. Um, 
Now, these ideas might seem outlandish, but I actually would argue that they indicate two good things, which is that uh, some people feel that something is missing and they are seeking it out. And that's important because I believe that uh, that openness to new ideas, um, even ideas that we might say are very outlandish sounding, is an opening also perhaps even to Christianity. So the the world is hungering, of course, for this message, for the good news, I would argue. And this is our chance to actually uh, share what we have that could be helpful to them. I would also say that speaking from a theological direction, uh, AI can help us understand God, or it might be able to help us understand God. So we can at least ask the question, uh, God's intelligence is uh, divine. It surpasses anything that we can comprehend. Um, and AI really makes that clear that this idea of, of higher levels of intelligence, or at least different sorts of intelligence, uh, might help us highlight the fact that God thinks very differently than we do. So, for example, the Bishop of Los Angeles, Robert Barron, once wrote an article called The Ways of Providence back in 2015, where he describes that he was driving through Los Angeles using the Ways app uh, to navigate traffic, and it sent him off on these weird roads, and he had no idea why he was doing that. But when he arrived at his destination, the people there told him, well, the reason the Ways app did that is because there was a major accident and one of the freeways was closed, so you were just diverted around that. And he said, well, this is something uh, something for us to think about in terms of providence and the fact that God can, uh, obviously, God knows a lot more than we do and knows a lot better how things might go. And therefore, obviously, we should cooperate with that. AI might also help us to organize better organize theology um, and theological education, I would argue. Um, and for this, I'd like to bring up a very short story about a, a person named Ramon Lull or Raymond Lull back in the late 1200s, early 1300s. Uh, Lull wanted to evangelize Muslims in North Africa. And he went there and he discovered that they, they thought that Europeans were backwards and primitive. And so he went home and he said, oh, that means I need to come up with something really high tech to show them. So he started all these investigations into combinatorial mathematics and computational theory. And he eventually produced something called the, let's see, the ultimate general art or the R, Ars Generalis Ultima. And the idea was that you would have these spinning wheels that you could turn around and the wheels would align with each other and they'd tell you certain pages to flip to in a book and it would answer questions about God. Now, this was 700 years ago, more than 700 years ago. And we have to ask ourselves today, we have vastly higher technology, but are we actually as ambitious as someone like Raymond Lowell was back in the early 1300s? Because I think what we have is we have this great technology, but we lack the understanding of the direction to point that technology in. And it's really an opportunity for us to take the technology that we have and perhaps fill some, uh, fulfill some of the dreams that people in the past had when they said, this will help us understand God, this will help with theological and ethical education. AI, I would argue, also can help us to express the image of God as it uh, appears in us and help us to fulfill ultimately God's mission for humankind. AI can do amazing good things. Medical research is an obvious one. Climate modeling, weather modeling, economic modeling, energy efficiency, transportation education, automated translation, um, labor efficiency, and of course the downside of that is potential unemployment. Uh, all sorts of applications in agriculture, environmental protection, land use monitoring, 
human rights abuse monitoring, detecting and fighting crime, and many, many other uses for AI that are out there. And this is where I want to kind of transition over to the anthropological question. So theologically speaking, uh, humans are important. We know that because God chose to incarnate as one of us. Therefore, our embodiment, our psychology, and our purpose and our finitude are all capable of fulfilling God's hope for us. God has these hopes, and we are equipped to hopefully fulfill these if we choose to fulfill that mission. So AI raises questions for humanity, especially questions of what makes us unique. If we can take our intelligence out of our own minds and put them into the world externally from us and then improve upon them. So these technologies are in some ways even uh, more powerful than they are when they're with us. And so the question I would ask then, what remains of humanity when our intelligence is not what makes us distinct, when our intelligence is externalized? Computers beat us at chess. That happened decades ago. Uh, computers can beat us at the game of Go. That happened just a few years ago. Uh, they handle data better than humans can. They can handle large data sets of millions and millions of pieces of information that no human mind can comprehend. They're much faster at cyber defense and other sorts of things where you need to have fast responses. A computer is obviously optimized for that. Computers can optimize for almost any task better than humans, or at least it's looking that way in the future. And then we might ask ourselves, what is left? And I would argue that the thing that is left is love. Love is really the thing that makes us distinct from computers. And our work is to love more than to think or to analyze things. Thinking exists to serve that role, because really, if we say that God is love and God is, you know, revealed God's self through Jesus, then we need to re recognize that that love is a self-sacrificial love also. Hence the picture that I have in the background here. This idea of love is not merely a thin romantic veneer over reality. It's something profound and deep and ultimately uh, binds all of reality together. So AI is not love. This, if there's something that AI truly cannot do, it cannot love. It might be able to act as some sort of uh, mediating layer between humans, but it cannot produce love itself because that's simply not what it does. It's not what it's for. Uh, ultimately, AI is advanced statistics, and advanced statistics is not going to express love to you. Um, AI is also not logos. In other words, it's it's not that kind of divine logic like Jesus. Um, and I would argue AI is not even really an I. It has no intelligence in and of itself. The intelligence of artificial intelligence is really human intelligence abstracted, taken and externalized and turned into an external object, which then acts on our, uh, on our request, basically doing what we want it to do. The reason that I would say that AI should not really be called intelligent is, is because intelligence implies freedom, it implies will, it implies desire. Computers don't have any of those things. Um, and what e AI really does is it calculates statistical likelihoods. And like I said before, it's, it's fundamentally advanced statistics in that way. And so we have to ask ourselves, anytime someone is talking about AI and hyping AI, uh, ask yourself, if you can replace the word or the letters AI with advanced statistics, does it really sound as exciting as uh, the person is making it sound like? So embodiment, I would argue, is extremely important, especially in terms of the connection to the, the doctrine of the incarnation. Uh, 
humans not only have bodies, we are bodies. And that's something that we really need to remember. This is something that transhumanists and often some sorts of uh, computer scientists and others who are looking at this sometimes uh, think of that idea as intelligence being once again abstractable and therefore the container doesn't matter, the container being our body or a computer or something like that. But of course, in this world that we're in right now, body and soul are only separable in death. And so that's not something that we can really uh, talk about in terms of making humans disembodied or disembodying intelligence. And really the incarnation of Jesus demonstrates uh, that material embodiment is truly a blessing from God. It's not a curse, which is what, of course, uh, many people think of when they when they think of embodiment. They view it as something uh, which is lowering of us. But really, we should see it as something that this this raises us up and makes us something very important. And I think the incarnation really highlights that. Um, there are also psychological strengths and weaknesses that humans have. Uh, AI can very much exploit our weaknesses. Um, in fact, there are more than a few tech companies that rely on the various things that are associated with sin or actually even fundamentally uh, sinful business models. Uh, so, for example, pride, vanity, greed, wrath, envy, lust, and gluttony, the seven deadly sins. Um, this is something that Reed Hoffman, you might, if uh, some of you might recognize him, he's, he's in this image here. And uh, Reed Hoffman is a tech billionaire. And he, one of the things he says is his, uh, his investment strategy is to make sure that the company he's looking at somehow uh, relates to one of the seven deadly sins. That's one of his, uh, you know, quick uh, tools to try to figure out whether this company is going to succeed or not. Um, now, recent, he actually said this at a Vatican conference. This is this is a Vatican conference that happened back in 2019 called the Common Good in the Digital Age Conference. You can find these videos online. Uh, and uh, this is the moment in the conversation where he explains his investment strategy to the other people on the panel and the audience. Um, so AI could be used to strengthen us rather than exploit us instead. That's the next thing that I would say. And this is actually something that Reed Hoffman has talked about uh, recently. Uh, he had been talking about this investing in the seven deadly sins strategy for years. And just recently, just last year, he said, by the way, the point of this investment strategy is not sin itself. The point is that it taps into a capacity of human nature. And actually, we should be making sure that uh, when we are building technology, we're not just tapping into sin, we're actually trying to promote virtue ultimately. And that's one of the reasons that uh, he would say that LinkedIn is different. LinkedIn is the company that he founded, the social network. And so he he said, of course, LinkedIn relates to greed, but uh, ultimately it's not purely about greed. It's about something more than that. And I just wanna you know zoom in on him there. This is the face you make when you tell a Vatican conference that you are actually have been investing in sin for a long time. And I love the expressions of the other people on the panel also. Uh, Mitchell Baker, who's right next to Reed Hoffman, is saying, oh, you know, she's, she must be saying to herself, oh, I, I don't know if you should have said that. The person in the middle is saying, hmm, interesting. Um, <laughs> and the other two reactions are also visible there. All right. And of course, one of the things anthropologically that relates to AI um, might be to ask, what is our purpose in creation? Um, and I'd say our purpose in creation is simple. If you read the Genesis story, uh, humans were put there to keep and to till the garden. In other words, to take care of this uh, world that they had been put into. 
course, we're also uh, called to love God and neighbor as the two greatest commandments. And ultimately, we are supposed to be like God. And so this raises all sorts of questions uh, for us in in that how can we be like God? How should our technology and our power emulate God's power? So biblical revelation calls us to be like God. Of course, the snake in the garden, if you go back to the to the original story there, um, says you will be like gods if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so there's an interesting distortion going on there. Something has gone wrong because he's using the same words or the, the character in the story is using the same words. And we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean if it if it turns out being different? Of course. Uh, if you read Leviticus and other places in the Bible, it's emphasized we should be holy as God is holy. Um, but then we have to ask ourselves, really, what about God's power? Is that what we should be imitating or 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 what does what is the relationship between holiness and power? So what I would argue, and I, I believe is clearly the case, um, our purpose in creation requires a certain amount of power and human power is always technological power. Um, there's always something about humankind which requires the use of technology. We wear clothes, we have books, we're communicating with each other over Zoom right now. But even backing up from some of this high technology, uh, we might say caring for each other requires very, very basic things. We need to have construction technology in order to build shelter. We need to have food, and that requires either hunting for food or gathering food or agriculture. Uh, we need medical technology because we do become sick. We need transportation technology so that we can coordinate all these other things that we have to do and communication technology as well. Of course, worshiping God, if we just think of the ways that we worship now, we uh, we have churches, we have vestments and, and the textiles that are required to produce those vestments. Uh, metallurgy is involved, glassware, writing. So many things are, are uh, technologies that help with this and actually... Um, you can see this in the history of Western Christianity in particular, that this uh, this use of technology in in the worship of God actually was a major driver of technological development in Western Europe. Um, and then caring for nature also, uh, transportation, and if you want to become more advanced, of course, environmental science, computer modeling, economics, Satellites. This is one of the major ways that we know about what's going on on Earth these days is through satellites. And of course, how do you get a satellite into orbit? It's through rocketry. So these more advanced forms of technology can be very much used to help fulfill our purpose that God has given us. And of course, if you read the Bible, there are several verses in the Bible that are connected to power. Uh, Jesus says, for example, you shall know them by their fruits. A true prophet is going to produce good actions. And of course, producing action requires sufficient power. Jesus tells his disciples to go and do likewise, promoting imitation of his miracles. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, do greater works than these. And this could be conceived as a call, actually, to determine how to do these greater works. And very often it is through technology. And this is, of course, a famous image of Jesus measuring out the heavens and the earth. And so we might ask ourselves now about technology. The Bible says explicitly in several places that God is an artificer. Uh, they use the word technites in Greek. And Jesus is a builder, a tektonos or tekton. Um, and therefore, we should also think to ourselves, we can imitate God through science and technology. 
there's something that is a profound connection there between God and humankind. Um, and of course, while some stories extol the virtues of technological power, others clearly reject it. And this is another thing that we should think about. Um, in the Genesis narrative, when Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden, God gifts them with higher technology, specifically animal skin clothing. If you read the story of Noah's Ark, what is Noah's Ark other than a massive technological artifact which is used to save creation? That's a very interesting narrative. Uh, of course, the descriptions of the temple in Kings and Chronicles, the temple has an enormous amount of technology and skilled application of human labor and resource management, all these many, many things that are involved in building the temple. However, there are other places in the Bible where it's very ambivalent or negative towards technology. So, for example, in Genesis 4, new technologies such as farming cities, metallurgy are not necessarily looked upon as good things. Of course, the Tower of Babel is an example of a massive technological construction, which is actually very, very bad. And so bad, of course, that uh, it has to be stopped. And of course, there are so many other problems with idolatry and worshiping the work of human hands. And I think this idolatry problem is something that we should very much keep in mind as we are thinking about technology, because I think humans have a fundamental psychological tendency towards idolatry. And very often it turns out to be technology that is the fundamental thing that we are idolizing. So now the question of finitude, another you know basic anthropological fundamental about humans. Of course, we can curse our finitude or we can appreciate it. Uh, finitude, of course, represents a weakness to us, but weakness can actually help us um, in some ways. And so here's a joke. This is attributed to the physicist John Wheeler, but it actually uh, precedes him significantly. Uh, he says, time is what keeps everything from happening all at once. And space is what keeps everything from happening to you. And, you know, it's a, it's kind of a funny response to the question of, hey, why does space and time exist? And it's interesting, I think, theologically speaking, because, of course, for God, uh, it's everywhere and every when at the same time. Um, God really is experiencing everything all at once and really is experiencing all of space in one in, in one, you know, united location with God. And so we have to ask ourselves, then, why did God not create us in that way? Why are we created much weaker? Um, and of course, what I would argue is that for sinful creatures, finitude is actually good. And this is where we would transition to ethics in my discussion today. Um, if we cannot be holy as God is holy, and there are a bunch of verses in the Bible where you can look this up, or perfect as God is perfect, then the obvious alternative is that we will be dead as sin is dead. Um, and this is really important for us to think about as we grow in technological power, because I would argue that our technological power has been limited. Um, at least we started in the past with none of this technology. And we've been growing and growing in power. And we should recognize that this is making us more and more dangerous, ultimately. By the way, this image here is a image of a, I, I can't remember exactly which church in Rome this is, but it has this fantastic carving of a marble skull which I then crossed using the Deep Dream software with uh, an image of, of metal and uh, various parts of metal. And so it just makes this kind of interesting cross here. So God made us weak and, and finite in order to protect us ultimately from our own sin. It limits us. The more powerful we become, the more destructive our sins will become individually and collectively. 
until eventually we're going to strike disaster and uh, we will return to weakness until we can't do that to ourselves anymore. Of course, the clear alternative would be to turn towards God and seek holiness instead of power. And here I'm going to do a, a short historical detour into the history of Christianity and technology. Um, I have a paper from back in 2017, which addresses his, uh, kind of the history of Christianity and technology. And um, some basic ideas from that were that for, for all of history, basically, Christians have been techno-optimists, which is that uh, technology is fundamentally helpful. It's fundamentally something that is good for human society. And so the Catholic Church, starting all the way at, from the fall of the Roman Empire, um, has been collecting technology, preserving technology. Um, so many monasteries, for example, preserve technology and records of technology. Um, these monasteries also very much promoted technology and produced technology. And ultimately, they led to an entire economy which uh, involved consuming technology. So there were monastic mills, for example, that ground uh, grain into flour. There were earthworks that uh, prevented flooding and uh, produced more land in places like, like the Netherlands. Of course, cathedrals are basically, uh, of course, they're monuments to God, but they're also, in a way, monuments to human dedication towards technology. A cathedral is a massive technological artifact. The pipe organs in a cathedral for example, are an incredibly complicated piece of technology. Um, the development of the scientific method also very much, um, of course, drove these things. And what was the driving force behind the scientific method was understanding more about God's creation. Um, people like Gregor Mendel, Georges Lemaitre, um, the invention of hypertext, which is not something that many people know about. Hypertext was invented because a Jesuit priest named Roberto Busa went to uh, Thomas Watson, the head of IBM, and said, I have, basically here, I have the Summa Theologia, and uh, I'd like to be able to create linkages within the Summa so that people can easily get from one thing that, that St. Thomas is saying and access either the source that he's referencing or some other place in the Summa. And Thomas Watson said, oh, we can do that. We can figure out how to solve this technological problem. And so the whole reason that hypertext exists is because of a Jesuit priest asking the head of IBM to help make the Summa Theologia more navigable, which I think is pretty exciting. It's a, it's a very little known story and really deserves to be known more. So once again, technology was in the history of the church is fundamentally being considered a good thing. The only exceptions were weapons technologies. And you can see this all the way back at the second letter in council in 1139, where the crossbow was banned and other bowed weapons were banned against the, uh, they were banned for use against other Christians. Um, the concept carries on in international weapons bans, actually, even today, this understanding that some weapons shouldn't be used um, carries on with the idea of chemical weapons being banned, biological weapons being banned. Of course, landmines have been partially banned, blinding lasers, poison bullets. Those are also banned technologies. People are trying to ban lethal autonomous weapon systems, which would be another clear connection to AI. They have not been banned yet. People have been trying to ban nuclear weapons, also not banned yet. But I think we need to recognize that technology can be controlled if we decide to do that. Um, and of course, nowadays, the church includes contraceptives and other reproductive technologies because it views them as being fundamentally anti-life. They're not killing, but they're preventing life from coming into existence. And if life is a good thing, uh, then that should be avoided. I would argue now that we no longer live in this technologically optimistic world 
that uh, has basically been the situation in Western culture for centuries and over a millennia, really. Um, and so what do we face now? We face unlimited technological development, increasingly free of ethical constraints, and increasing, increasingly risky for all of humanity. And so what might we expect of this? And of course, AI is the looming uh, force there. So if you want to think of it in four choices and absolutes, you have good and evil, powerless and powerful. Um, if you're good but weak, you would create a better world, but you can, you lack the power. If you're evil but weak, you would harm people, but you lack the power. If you're good and powerful, then the the maximal extent of that to to take it to its full conceptual limit would be the Christian ideal of God, of course. And of course, if you're evil and powerful, then it ultimately becomes something satanic. Um, and that can only end in self-destruction for contingent creatures like humans are. Of course, the world is not that simple. Uh, there's also a middle area. And so I would argue, where are we right now with technology? We're somewhere in this middle row, uh, transitioning perhaps from uh, the middle level of power up to a more powerful level that we should be thinking about. And of course, ethically, we could go either way. And these are just some arrows to indicate. We do not want to go towards self-destruction, very obviously. We want to move towards good uses of technology, towards the direction perhaps uh, that uh, we might think of when we think of God. Um, but right now we're on the path of the black arrow, which is we're capable of both holiness and self-destruction at the same time. And if you think purely probabilistically, if you're a contingent creature and not everyone is agreeing on what's good and bad, and stochastically, some things are going to go better or worse. Eventually, this middle category ends up over in the self-destruction category, unless we work really hard to reverse course and end up over in the other location. So here you can see clearly not the red arrow, not the black arrow. We need to take our green arrow. And if we get down into that uh, you know, middle area, we either need to go back and reduce our power through things like weapons limitations, um, and shift over towards the good side and ultimately move towards the understanding of God being good and powerful at the same time. All right, I know I've been going fast, but I want to try to wrap up uh, relatively soon so that we can get to questions. Regarding AI, there is much good to be done, and there is also a lot of evil to be avoided. Uh, much of that ground is already being covered by secular thinkers. Um, all sorts of questions involving bias, safety, transparency, privacy, employment, inequality, uh, moral de-skilling, and so on. If you look up these words with respect to AI, you will find multitudes of resources on them. This is an image of a Tesla crash where the autopilot drove the driver into a wall on the freeway and set the car on fire and killed the driver. Um, and if you look up Tesla accidents, there are more and more of them that are occurring all the time. From an ethical perspective, I would argue that society would benefit from a more specifically Catholic perspective, too. And this is where I think we need to have more thought about this, because I'm just one person. I'm thinking about this. There are other people also thinking about this, but it really is only a few handfuls of people um, that I know of around the world. And so we might ask ourselves, what could this more specifically Christian and Catholic response towards AI include? Um Clearly, things like rejection of the technocratic paradigm. The technocratic paradigm views reality as a giant efficiency problem, um, and therefore technology is always the solution because it makes things more efficient. The, the world is not a giant efficiency problem. The world is fundamentally a problem of good and evil and loving God and neighbor. 
and we need to do those things. And so ethics always judges technology. We want to be efficient at doing good and inefficient at doing evil, which is why we need to restrict weapons technologies, for example. Another thing might be an emphasis on integral ecology and integral human development. If you read Laudato Si, you'll see those ideas very clearly uh, presented there. Of course, a preferential option for the poor and vulnerable, I think, is very important. Um, we have a special issue of the Journal of Moral Theology coming out next month on AI, and we have a paper in there that's specifically on this topic by Levi Chekets, um, talking about uh, how does a how does AI relate to the poor and vulnerable. I think an emphasis on care, compassion, and love is ultimately something that we really need to emphasize also as Christians. And of course, there are many more things too. I can't imagine all the connect points of connection, but uh, I think we really need to work on this to to figure out what they are. Um, and but then, so I would ask: Can a Catholic ethical response to AI be more than just a veneer of Catholicism placed on top of the Roman pantheon, for example? Uh, natural law reasoning allows us to make a common cause for common reasons on many issues in AI. But I think uh, we need to not forget the things that really make Christianity distinct. Jesus dies for us. Jesus gives us his life. God is love. We need to love our enemies. And these sorts of very deep fundamental ideas that are involved in Christian theology are really important, I think. This is, of course, the Pantheon. And uh, that's the original image it came from before I kind of uh, deep dreamified it. Now we're getting into the political questions. Uh, politically, AI has the practical potential to solve many problems of efficiency and scarcity and scale also, um, which is why you can look at certain places on Earth um, and they have ideas of how to use technology that are that are uh, perhaps we would look at and say that's disturbing. That's not good. Um, it's a totalitarian dream come true, basically. These are images from China where they demolished Christian churches. Um, and so this implementation of a surveillance state is something that can be done with massive efficiency and at scale. This promotion or suppression of certain sorts of ideas, including Christianity, is something that can be done at scale and with great efficiency. And this is something that we need to be aware of because this could easily happen anywhere. All of these parts exist in the Western world and in many nations around the world, but they haven't been assembled into this kind of totalitarian uh, control schema. And so we need to be paying attention to that and making sure that, I mean, first of all, it would be good if we could prevent it, although there's a lot of technology going in that direction right now, which makes it difficult to do that. And so we need to really think about the control problem. How do we control our technology? Loving your enemies is something that I think is really important for us to remember here, because it's easy to say uh, they have a different perspective on reality than I do. That makes them an opponent to me. But we really need to think about the fact that uh, loving our enemies is one of the most specifically Christian commands that there is. It's very, very different. It turns the world fundamentally upside down. This is a drawing that was made of the Christmas truce in World War I, where in 1914, a lot of the troops on either side decided just to stop shooting at each other. And they got together, uh, they sang Christmas carols and things like that. Of course, when 1915 and 16 and 17 rolled around, this was no longer possible because the sides had become too embittered against each other. But at the start of the war, uh, things were not yet too far gone. We need to remember to love our enemies. What does it mean to love our enemies with respect to AI? Um, that includes trying to prevent 
these folks from doing evil in order to protect their own souls, if you want to think about it in that way. Uh, loving our enemies is fundamentally something which is designed for their benefit because they are human beings like we are, and we need to help them to also um, you know, be the best people that they can be. And that ultimately is a conversion experience. How, how do we help uh, even people who are very opposed to us understand uh, better choices and how to become better people? So politically speaking, AI is fundamentally a political problem. Ultimately, every technology is a political problem because every technology is a form of power directed towards certain ends. And those um, actions act upon human beings to either help us or harm us or form us into better or worse people. And so we really need to think about these questions at a political level. How do we use technology to help people and not harm them? How do we use technology to form us into better and not worse people? So given the ap apocalyptic quality of technology, what ought a government to do? Uh, every potentially dangerous technology should be thoroughly ethically evaluated, I, I, I would argue. Um, and of course, this is this is what I do. So of course, I think it's important. But I think that uh, in the way the world is right now, this is something that we really need to think about. Uh, every potentially dangerous technology needs to be ethically evaluated from its conception at the very beginning, its design, its production, sales, use, and ultimately disposal. Um, because there's so much there that could go wrong. And when you're dealing with a powerful technology, you really need to make sure that it does not go wrong. So just starting to wrap things up now, human intelligence is used for the full spectrum of our behaviors from good to evil. AI is going to be used also for that full spectrum of our behaviors from good to evil. Uh, we need to strongly encourage, promote, and facilitate the good uses of AI and strongly discourage, limit, or ban the bad uses. Otherwise, it should be very clear we're going to end up in a terrible world. This image, by the way, is from the Anthropology Museum in Mexico City. And we might remember another uh, biblical verse from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. And I think that it's very clear with technology, we need to be choosing life-giving technologies and technologies that benefit human life. Um, we need to not be choosing death and curses um, because guess what's going to happen? We're, our, our descendants are not going to live. This is going to be something that is self-limiting in a very destructive and horrible way when, of course, we do have the choices to do the right thing. And I think this is an important hope. Right now, there's there's a certain amount of hopelessness uh, hopelessness in the world. And we really need to consider the fact that God would not put us into a hopeless situation. God always presents us with the ability to do the right thing and turn towards God and make the right choices. We might get very far down particular paths that are bad. And uh, ultimately, we might get into situations that we, we're horrified to be in and don't want to be there and might actually you know, be required to sacrifice ourselves to help others or things like that. But uh, if we're thinking better with technology, we can think back and hopefully prevent those lose-lose situations from happening and instead uh, think bigger picture, longer term, more beneficial, uh, non-zero sum. And how can we actually make a world which is beneficial to everyone? It's, it's possible. There's absolutely hope. And we need to remember that. Uh, so AI, you know, just concluding, it's a powerful technology, it's dual use, it offers us both help and harm. 
Um, but beyond these questions of use, there are the, also these deeper questions of meaning, identity, and purpose that are raised by AI and give us an opportunity to reevaluate ourselves and what we really need to be doing in life. All these questions need answers. Um, I hope, you know, some of you here today can help find those answers because it's, there's a lot to do. There's, there's wonderful things, wonderful, wonderful work to be done in this area. If you want to learn more, like I said, there's a special issue of the Journal of Moral Theology on AI, which is going to be coming out next month. And with that, I'll just say thank you very much. And it's been uh, wonderful talking.